everybody, and welcome to Snescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo library. Three games at a time, usually. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them, and that is pretty much all you need to know. I am Steampunk Link. I am ME Zero. And once again, we have been foiled by the fact that we have a Super Scope game that was on the docket for today. We did not realize it was a Super Scope game, so we won't be covering X-Zone right now. Uh, someday we'll probably get to these Super Scope games, although that's even tougher now with all the COVID stuff and and uh, social distancing and all that. So That is very true, unfortunately. So yeah, sorry, X-Zone. Uh, your day will have to come at a later date, if at all. I will say, though, just as a brief mention, please go and look at the like opening narration for X-Zone because you will never see a more jaunty and extreme description of a ticking clock to nuclear war than you will in that opening. It is very funny. And uh, also one little announcement I want to make is that the Honest Piranha website is live again. You can go to honestpiranha.com and check out the website that I built for all of this. Uh, This is version three, I guess, of this thing. I've I've built this website in a lot of different ways. But a cool thing about the website is that when you go there to check out the episodes, if you're listening to us from the for the first time and you want to go back from the beginning and see how the list formed, you can actually go back, start from episode zero, and there'll be um, a button you can push on the web page for each episode that will show you what the list looked like when we added that episode's games to it. It's kind of a fun way to follow along. Yeah, if this is your first episode with us, welcome. Yeah. Um, and again, feel free to go back and check out how the list got to where it is, or you can just go to the website and see what the list actually looks like because we don't read off the list every episode because that would take forever. Yeah, that would not be fun for you or for us. So we don't do that. I guess we're just going to get into it. So we're not doing X Zone today, but we are going to be talking about Word Triss and we are going to be talking about Wing Commander. Um, we're going to get Word Triss out of the way first because, you know, this is a pretty small game. I don't imagine there's going to be much to cover here. Well, let's let's go to it then. Let's let's get all up in those words. All right. So Word Triss is a game developed by a trio of Armenian developers. Um, and none of them seem to have any other credits on Moby Games. You'll have to excuse me, I didn't do a whole lot of research before this. We're just kind of winging it today. So uh, anyway, I I couldn't find much information here. Let me just um, take a sip of coffee as I read off these names here. So we have um, uh, Sergei Utkin, um, who uh, does not have any other credits other than this game on Moby Games. Uh, We have, um, okay, I'm going to butcher this name and I I apologize. Jaslav... Vacheslav Soy. Uh, also, no other games, uh, according to Moby Games, just this one. And uh, let's see, our third person here is Armin Sarkisian, who is the uh, president of Armenia. What? <laughs> wow. That's a pretty uh, pretty extreme career swerve, I feel like. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, all right, all joking aside, um, how did the guy who is currently the president of Armenia end up also making this game at one point? Uh, well, I mean, I guess we're going to talk about him. Sarkisian was elected president in March 2018, 
in Armenia, and he assumed the presidency the following month and is currently the president of the country. Before that, he was an ambassador to London under the former president, Serge Sargsyan, which oddly in some news articles is spelled Sarkisian, but is spelled differently than Armin Sarkisian, so they are, they're, they're not related who had previously been the prime minister of the country and had recommended Armin for the job. In fact, there's a lot of speculation that there were some shady things going on. Um, the entire situation may have been something of a power grab by Sargsian. Not Sarkisian. I see. <laughs> so in 2015, the country changed its form of government uh, to a parliamentary one from uh, the sort of uh, semi-presidential one that it had been which greatly diminished the power of the president in favor of the prime minister, um, which Sargsian was able to run for again and actually won as he was handing the presidency over to Sarkisian. Uh, Sarkisian himself had actually been prime minister at one point as well. So the optics on this weren't great and the people of Armenia were not happy about it. And in fact, um, massive protests around the country actually forced Sargsian to step down after only being in office for a, five or six days and uh, was then replaced by wow okay. yeah he was then replaced by Tigran Sargsian who again uh, no relation I don't think <laughs> man that must be a very common name in Armenia I guess um, but anyway so far focusing back on Sarkisian uh, as mentioned before he had been an ambassador to London from 1998 to 2018 although some accounts state that he had held other positions and, and kind of like you know went back and forth between being the ambassador and then being a consultant to some companies and things like that. He got that job perhaps due to his previous occupation as a professor of maths at Cambridge University. I love how other English speaking countries pluralize the word math, and I think we should start doing it too. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he was a professor of maths at Cambridge in the 80s uh, when Armenia was still a member of the Soviet Union. In 1988, according to Wikipedia, he became the head of the Department of C Computer Modeling of Complex Physical Phenomena at Cambridge. That's a mouthful. I presume that this may have been when he co-authored WordTris, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, in a 2018 article from arminpress.am, which I don't think is very well translated, perhaps, um, it states, uh, without giving a timeline, uh, it says that Sarkeesian said that he, quote, used to be engaged in scientific research work, namely mathematical modeling, end quote. Sarkeesian continued talking about computer modeling as it applied to things like nuclear power plants, lamenting that he believed the Chernobyl disaster could have been avoided had people been able to train in a modeled simulation before working on the real thing. Legit. Somehow this gets us to simpler models, perhaps as proof of concept, which apparently is what led to the development of WordTris. I'm not entirely sure how we got from point A to point B, and the article doesn't really go into a lot of detail. Indeed. Interesting. In any case, Sarkisian claims that the game was sold to IBM and Nintendo, which um, maybe he meant was licensed to those companies. Because we're kind of dealing with like three different filters, we have what Sarkisian actually told to the reporter what the reporter put on the page and then what got translated apparently to the website that I went to. I don't know where, you know, the mix up happened. Just kind of keep all of that in mind. Either way, Nintendo did not in fact like publish this game themselves. No, no, they did not. 
so the game ended up on PCs and Nintendo systems. So I'm guessing, you know, somebody just meant to say that, like, it was licensed to them. Yeah. Finally, he says that the copyright for the game was held by Armenica, which he claims was established in Delaware and, quote, once had successes from U.S. up to Korea. Interesting way to phrase that. And, yeah, couldn't find a whole lot of information about Armenica. Certainly didn't find a website, and Moby Games states that their only game is Wordtress, so... Okay. Maybe they had other dealings? I don't know. Maybe Armin himself established this company for the purpose of doing business in the United States. I do not know. I can't find out. What we do know for sure is that this game was published by Spectrum Holobyte, a company founded in 1983 in Boulder, Colorado, that would end up moving to Almeda, California at some point that I was not able to pin down, but oh well. In any case, the company was known for their flight simulation games and was also the first company to license Tetris outside of the Soviet Union. The story of Tetris will be a, will be a story for another episode because there's some stuff there. Yeah, there's some meat on those bones for sure. Um, if you are interested in the story of Tetris, there's a YouTuber by the name of the Video Game Historian who has a really fascinating video about it. Licensing to Spectrum Holobyte. Is that how we end up with this game that we have today, you know, being sort of tied into the Tetris brand? I think so. And, and even more than that, this game is tied to a specific game called Super Tetris, which I'll get into in just a moment here. So Spectrum Holobyte would go through several mergers throughout its existence, the first one being in 1987 when it merged with Nexa Corporation to become Sphere. Both of the companies that merged would still get to have their names on products like this one, which features both the names Spectrum Holobyte and Sphere in the opening screen. Similarly, Spectrum would get to keep using its name for a little while after being acquired by Microprose in 1993. In 1996, however, Microprose would consolidate all of its studios under the Microprose banner, effectively ending Spectrum Holobyte as a name, and an acquisition in 1998 by Hasbro would completely finish them off as they would close the Almeida studio a year later. Interesting to note, though, is that Spectrum Holobyte also worked on a PC edition of Tetris called Super Tetris, which is where a lot of the assets from this game come from, including like the weird sort of circus-themed pictures that you see. Yeah, I get the impression, whether it was because Spectrum Holobyte didn't really have like a ton of resources to work with on this, or or they just saw this as sort of like, you know, a, a lesser release. There wasn't seemingly a ton of effort put into creation of, of assets for, for this game at all. The backgrounds, like you said, are very much uh, just taken from Super Tetris. Um, I guess they fit about as well here as they probably did there. And the actual graphical stylings on the game board are very bland, I feel like. I mean, the nice thing about Tetris is that you can pretty much just theme it however you want. You can have the, the Russian theme stuff like all the Nintendo versions do. You can have this weird circus theme like the Super Tetris on PC does. You could have a totally relaxing quasi-vaporwave sort of aesthetic going like the Philips CDI version does. If you've never listened to the CDI soundtrack for Tetris... Go look that up on YouTube. It is amazing. It is some total chill beats to study to kind of vibe, and I love it. And actually, I do like the music in this game, too. There's not a ton of it, but I think it fits pretty well with this particular version of the whole Tetris aesthetic. The music for this game was written by Paul Mogg, and uh, he also worked on quite a few other soundtracks for other games, including some Star Trek games. 
which I think uh, also would have been released by Spectrum Holobyte. Is there more to the Wordtress story, or do you want to get into talking about the game itself at this point? I think we could probably get into the game. So Wordtress as a title, I thought that that would be a, a slightly more misleading title than it is. I do think it's kind of a fair title, though. Like, this game does feel, in some ways, close enough to Tetris that that I feel like the association makes sense. I think that, like, for the time, it was okay, because I think there was a tendency to put the word Tetris on a lot of different kinds of puzzle games that were not Tetris. And, I mean, I definitely want to say, definitively, this is not Tetris. Oh, no, it's not Tetris. But, yeah, in the same vein as, like, Weltris and Hatris and even Tetris 2. Tetris 2 is not Tetris either. (laughs) Or, like, Tetris Attack, which we'll talk about eventually, which was a completely different puzzle game called Panel de Pond in Japan. So, Panel de Pond's great, by the way. Y'all should play that. Yeah, well, we'll get to it when we get to Tetris Attack. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. But, uh, Wordtris is a puzzle game sort of in the same vein as you know many other sort of falling block puzzle games the main difference is that essentially here instead of trying to make lines of you know like colors or shapes or whatever you are in fact trying to spell out words all the tiles which fall as single blocks from the the top of the well each have a letter on them some of them are kind of a wild card where it can be one of of a number of different letters but essentially they fall to a line in the center of the screen and you are trying to make at least three letter words out of them to make those tiles disappear. That's sort of the main mechanic of this game. Basically, if you drop a tile on top of a tile that's already there, it gets pushed down below the line. This continues until the tiles have reached the the bottom of the well, at which point you can't push them down any further. And what that means is that you're you're kind of both trying to, if you can, make words on the, the sort of center line, but also trying to push letters that are below that into configurations where they will also make words. And I think it's an interesting game. Like, it activates the parts of the brain that a normal falling block puzzle game does, but also it gives you a little bit of the feeling of, like, playing Scrabble or something like that. Um, I think it's pretty cool. I think it's it's kind of neat. I think that this mechanic of having, like, a center line in which blocks start piling from the top down instead of from the bottom up until you reach the bottom and then they start piling up from the center line up is a really awkward and weird thing that is just hard to wrap my head around. Interestingly enough, this is how their version of Tetris, the Super Tetris that I mentioned before, functioned. Why would you make a Tetris game like that? I don't know. That's terrible sounding. Like, I felt like it made enough sense in in this game because it gave you this space below the line that you could kind of work with and try to set up things instead of just, you know, having like an endless endless sort of, you know, stacking tower. But I don't know why you would want an actual game of Tetris to play like that. That's super weird to me. But I also feel like if you're going to do WordTris like this, like maybe just make it that the losing condition is you know, not being able to place another block below the the line where everything sort of surfaces, uh-huh. um, and and just not have the blocks pile on top. It's it's weird that this mechanic like shifts once you get. It, it just really threw me off a lot of the time. Like when I'd have some 
columns that were piling on top and some that would still kind of sink below the line because there weren't enough to reach the bottom yet. Yeah. You know, we're like kind of seeing, you know, like, okay, I can make a word right here and then putting the block in there and then it doesn't land the way I was expecting it to. And and I feel like that threw me off a lot. The wild card thing I also really hate in this version of the game. I wasn't a huge fan of that either. Apparently on the PC version, you could just type a letter. I feel like that makes more sense for like a thing where you have a keyboard. With this, you can, you can either let it sort of pick a random letter or you can, you can switch to a specific letter yourself, but basically you just have to press up and down, right? It's a, it's a directional control, I think, but it's really finicky. There were multiple times when I tried to just have it go straight to, to the letter A, and it was very hard to do that without overshooting it. Like, it was very frustrating to actually pick a letter that was advantageous. Honestly, I don't think it's that useful the way it's done here. One thing that's also important to note, if you haven't seen the way this game looks, the well is very small. Like, it's basically taking up a small box in in sort of, like, the left of the screen. So there's not really a ton of space to work with here as the, as the, the letters fall. It obviously does the kind of standard Tetris thing of having the pieces move faster as you increase in level. But even when you're at the beginning of the game and it's moving fairly slowly, the lack of space just doesn't give you enough time, I think, to make really considered decisions, which I guess maybe is part of the point. But it it gets to being um, a little bit frustrating sometimes. And honestly, I think that the giant picture of a clown taking up the entire right side of the screen could have been a bit smaller and they could have increased the well size. We've alluded to this before, but the aesthetic of this game is is literally just photographs of like an old timey circus. You know, there's a, a variety of different pictures. There's clowns, there's a fire juggler, there's a lion tamer. Uh, all kinds of things. They, they're kind of fun pictures, really, but they are really low-resolution JPEG-looking things that have been blown up massively to fill the screen, and they are extremely grainy looking. It is not a great look. Honestly, like, I found this game relatively fun, but it's a real eyesore to, to actually look at. I don't know if I would go so far as to call it ugly. It just kind of felt like the theming was an afterthought, which, I mean, it very well may have been, because they were just like, hey, we already have these assets. game to be honestly a, a better time than I was expecting it to be. Like my first couple of minutes of playing, I was like, Ugh, I don't know about this, but I kind of did get into it. And I think I made it all the way to, to stage H. The stages go from letter A to letter J. So I did okay, actually. So what is the, the whole business with the word that is, is on screen in a box, like above the well? My guess is if you can make that word, you get bonus points, but I never got close. That was never in, in the cards for me, for sure. I, I think that is a, a sentiment that is echoed throughout almost every piece of criticism of this game that like, that's never going to freaking happen because you are so at the mercy of whatever random letters are getting dropped that, you know, you're, you're almost never going to be that lucky. No. Also, I feel like the game has a very limited vocabulary. There were a bunch of times when I had words that I know were valid, pretty common English words that didn't register in this game. Yeah, and the opposite was kind of true for me as well. Like, I I definitely agree that, like, words that I would have really expected this game to know were not 
registering, but sometimes it would just register something. I'm like, there is no way that's a word. I, I can't remember any off the top of my head, but sometimes like it would just be like, oh yeah, this is a word right here. And I'm like, no, I've never heard or seen that word in my life. I have a very hard time believing that's a word, unless it's a proper name, which I doubt it is because it was not registering common proper names. I don't know. It's a strange game. I'm going to say like, and this is probably mostly personal preference here, but I don't think that a word-based game with like this timing mechanic where you have to place things, you know, in a very brief amount of time really works for me. Like if I'm going to play something like a word game, like, you know, again, like Scrabble or a crossword puzzle or something like that, I want to sit down and take my time with it because as a result of this really strict time constraint, I was almost always just making really simple three or four letter words. Yeah, me too. This isn't making me feel clever. Like when I can put down like a really long or or complex word in Scrabble or something like that. As my time with the game went on, I started to play this more or less just like a normal puzzle game where I was just trying to line up the simplest possible words to clear out parts of, of the well. I feel like that is kind of a failure for this because ultimately the demands of playing the game made me not want to engage with the thing that makes this game different at all. It's so luck-based in a game where skill should have been able to come more into play, and, and I was disappointed that it couldn't. So yeah, do we want to try placing this game on the list? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. All right. So I guess, uh, you know, an obvious first place to look would be another puzzle game. Do we have... I feel like we don't have a ton of puzzle games on here right now. I think that honestly, like Super Buster Brothers being like kind of a, a single screen game is is maybe the closest to a puzzle game that we have, actually. Uh, we have Cubert 3, so that might count. Yeah, yeah. Where's where's Cubert 3? I think that's actually a good place to start, maybe. Cubert 3 is number 90. I think I would put this above Cubert 3. Yeah, I had more fun with this than I did with Cubert 3. And I think Cubert 3 is fantastically ugly. So we go up a little bit from that, a few places. We have Smart Ball. I feel like that is also a game with like central mechanics that just don't really quite work correctly. I think there's a bit more game there, though. Um, I think I would put this below Smart Ball at 84. How do you feel about that? I think that's fine. So we got a little bit of a range here then. Uh, between Smart Ball at 84 and Cubert 3 at 90. And within that, we have a few games that I think are relatively solid games that just don't speak to us super well. And, uh, and also a few that are just kind of busted but have some good qualities. So where in here do you see this landing? So I think something like either the Chess Master at 85 or Wheel of Fortune at 88 would be good games to compare this one to. But really, I think the key thing is Super Ghouls and Ghosts, which I feel like is usually our delineation between like what's actually decent and what's really just kind of bad and unrecommendable. Which side of this do you think Word Triss lands on? I think I would probably put this below Super Ghouls and Ghosts. Like, I think it just sort of doesn't work quite well enough for me to give it, like, kind of an unqualified recommendation. So then we have Wheel of Fortune at 88. Which works, but is pretty thin. Now that I'm looking at this, I think I would put this just above Cubert at at number 90 and between Bart's Nightmare and Cubert 3. I don't think I would recommend this game above Bart's Nightmare. I think Bart's Nightmare was was a lot more ambitious and, and... has some really good qualities about it, even though, like, gameplay-wise, it is mostly pretty bad. But it, it's it got some original concepts. It looks great. It's really 
trying to do something there. Like, my recommendation for that game would be like, hey, check out a YouTube video of it because the visuals of it look really, really impressive. Where, like, with WordTris, I can't even say that much, you know? I'm good with that. I'm good with this being our new, with WordTris being our new number 90 game. So, uh, there we go. WordTris number 90. Um, you know, you, you never expect that you're going to be going into Armenian politics, but WordTris took us there. It's really true. I never would have expected that one. Kind of neglected researching these games today. I just started working on this last night, and I was like, okay, I'll just start with WordTris because this is such a nothing thing. There's surely no deep rabbit hole I'm going to fall into with this game, and haha, joke's on me. Surprise. As a result, um, we're going to be winging it just a little bit with our next game, which is, appropriately enough, Wing Commander. How convenient. This is a game with a lot of history behind it as well, and uh, we are going to talk about some of that history, though. Don't worry. Wing Commander. This is a big name. This is a very, very famous series, mostly as a PC game. One of the foundational games of the space flight sim fighter pilot shooter genre, which was a quite a going concern in, in the 90s. It, it more or less sort of faded out by the end of the 90s. But you are a pilot fighting in various space combat scenarios. One thing that I do want to mention that that I found sort of interesting in looking at stuff about this game is game is is to some extent credited with something that's a little unfortunate, which is sort of raising the raising the game for like production values and budget for for PC games to the point where several companies were just not able to stay in business basically. <laughs> Because it elevated what people expected from this type of game to an extent that if you were a company below a certain sort of scale and and resources threshold, it just wasn't possible to keep up with them anymore. We talked a little bit about some problems with the industry in the last couple episodes. I know we mentioned, you know, crunch. I do want to add one thing to our talk about crunch last time. We kind of implied that like... Crunch was sort of a modern problem in video games. It was also a problem in the 90s as well. It was a different time, and the, and the scale of projects tended to be different. But certainly there are stories about like the people who made Diablo 2 living in their office, basically, because they were just working on the game all the time. Absolutely, that's that's not a completely modern phenomenon. But there are points where things sort of jump up and like kind of become bigger issues than they they were before and i think that the budget thing here is is sort of one of those i probably should have mentioned that more that yeah there there was a lot of crunch still going on even back then it's just that you know it, it wasn't considered like the norm which it unfortunately kind of is now for large parts of the industry and we're only now trying to course correct that somewhat you know another issue is that you know like a lot of video games from this era did come from japan and you know Japan has had an issue of people just like, you know, living in their offices, you know, across all industries. That's just a problem that has existed in Japan for a long time. Oh, yeah. You know, to the point where it was just kind of considered like a part of Japanese culture, which, again, like, is not good. And that should not be a part of your culture. You you should get to go home and relax. And, you know, like, nobody should have to live where they work.
getting back to Wing Commander, the original Wing Commander, of which this is a direct port, was created by Origin Systems, and more specifically by Chris Roberts, who's credited as the lead designer as well as one of two 3D programmers and one of two producers. Um, the other one being Warren Spector, who unfortunately we're, I'm not going to do a deep dive into right now because we've got to talk about Chris Roberts. We need to talk about Chris Roberts, people. Roberts would be heavily involved in the Wing Commander franchise throughout the 90s, culminating in being the director and an actor in the 1999 film adaptation of Wing Commander, which was a complete flop, losing about $20 million on a $30 million budget for its production company, 20th Century Fox. I've seen that movie. It is not good. I have not seen this movie, but uh, you said you basically went to see it because it had the trailer for Star Wars Episode One. The trailer for Star Wars Episode One was released exclusively with prints of this movie. So for the, the first, however, I don't know, week or, or, or maybe more than that, that that trailer was out there in the world. The only way to actually see it was to go to a movie theater and buy a ticket for Wing Commander and watch that. And I was really excited about that movie. Not this movie, Wing Commander, which I already kind of had the feeling was not going to be great. It was actually worse than I thought it was going to be. Getting back to Chris Roberts. So here's another thing about Chris Roberts is that, you know, he he founds companies and then tends to jump ship once they get acquired by larger companies because he doesn't seem to work with larger companies too well, which, you know, I, I, I can get on board with that. So Roberts left Origin in 1996, a few years after the company had been acquired by EA in 1992, to form Digital Anvil which, aside from making games, also worked on some of the visual effects for the Wing Commander film. That company, pretty early on in its life, entered into a deal with Microsoft uh, to publish their games, but that would lead to Microsoft acquiring the company outright in 2000. Or maybe that would have happened anyway, who knows. So once Microsoft sunk their claws into Digital Anvil, Roberts would leave again to start another new company, uh, he ended up starting a film production company this time in 2002 called Ascendant Pictures, which produced notable films like The Big White and Who's Your Caddy and Lucky Number Slevin. I will say they did produce one of my actual favorite movies, the 2008 sci-fi fantasy adventure Outlander. This was a movie that was basically like, here is the story of Beowulf, but what if Beowulf and Grendel were both aliens who crash landed in Norway in the ninth century. Uh, that movie is cool. Nobody has heard of it. You should go check it out. Uh, it's a lot of fun, but yeah, a lot of these other movies that Robert's uh, production company made are, are not things that I would really recommend to folks. Not only were some of these films not very good, but the way that he got them produced was a little bit on the shady side as well. According to a Forbes article, quote, Roberts teamed up with a German lawyer, Ortwin Freiermuth, I'm probably butchering that as well, I apologize, who is now vice chairman of Cloud Emporium, uh, put a pin in that. They arranged financing from an investment fund that was using a tax scheme to raise money in Germany for Hollywood movies. By 2006, the German government had stopped the practice, and the fund's founder was sentenced to jail for tax fraud. So, yeah, that was how they got the funding for their movies. Not completely above board there, seeing as how, I mean, obviously not, seeing as how somebody went to jail for tax fraud over it. But those people were not Friermuth or Roberts, who, uh, you know, apparently were 
distanced enough from all of that that they could profit from it, but not actually go down for it. And, you know, I mean, like, I, I don't actually know all the dealings of that. I shouldn't say that, like, you know, I, I shouldn't implicate either of them of, of like, knowingly doing something wrong. Uh, movie industry's full of shady stuff. And, you know, honestly, a, a little bit of financial malfeasance is one of the lesser things that anybody in Hollywood has has done. Yeah, we're implicating all of Hollywood, actually. <laughs> this is all a joke. This is all a joke. You can't sue us. Clearly, nobody could actually believe that we're being serious about any of this. After that, uh, Robert started Cloud Imperium. Remember them? The, the controversies, though, keep coming. And this is where we get into the story of... Star Citizen, which is a video game project that Roberts has been working on now since 2011, I'm going to say. Is that right? 2011 was apparently when work started on Star Citizen, and then it had a very successful Kickstarter in 2013, which was when it was sort of first announced to the public. Since then, they've released some things like various betas and... Disconnected modules for it. I mean, essentially, Star Citizen's initial pitch was pretty modest. I believe it was essentially, I want to make a modern evolution of the Wing Commander concept. And at some point, between the kind of enormous crowdfunding success of the game... And the ability that they discovered to just continue to make money by selling in-game items through their website after the Kickstarter had finished, the scope sort of started to creep, as it does. And it changed from whatever it was originally supposed to be into a completely simulated virtual galaxy full of planets, star systems... Uh, realistic physical interactions between things in space, first-person shooter modes, planet-side exploration, trading, combat, all kinds of stuff. Uh, And the scope just sort of kept growing and growing. And there are people that have spent thousands of dollars on ships for Star Citizen. And to my knowledge, in a lot of cases, still do not actually have a version of that ship that they bought available to play in what exists of the game now. There's a very complicated roadmap on Robert's website talking about their ambitions for the game. Again, like this just seems like the sort of thing where, you know, maybe they'll be able to keep releasing assets, but I mean at this point I would be surprised if a full game like the one that they're describing ever could possibly materialize from all of this. I know that we mentioned before that Roberts doesn't seem to work that well with larger companies, but having some outside force that could potentially tell him, we need to get this thing under control and make a shippable product out of it, probably would have helped. I've actually played very little of this. I could not get a handle on the controls at all. I'm a little bit ill-prepared and maybe even ill-equipped to properly review and rank this one, but uh, we're going to try anyway because that's what we do on this show. I genuinely did my best to try to play this game. I've never played other versions of this game. I've not played the original MS-DOS version or any of the other console versions, so I don't know if the issues I had with being able to effectively make progress in this game would have been present in those as well. You know, this game has essentially two main parts. One part I thought was pretty fun and cool. The other part I found borderline 
unplayable for me, at least, in this version of the game. Basically, this is a game where you are a pilot who has just joined the ranks of a a squadron flying from a, a ship called the Tiger's Claw in a big intergalactic space war between humans and this cat-like alien race called the Kilrothi. You are a fighter pilot. You fly with a squadron of other pilots in various missions throughout the, the course of this war. And essentially, while you're on the ship, Tiger's Claw, you are in what's kind of like a point-and-click adventure game, visual novel-esque exploration mode. There's a few different rooms you can go into. The main one is a ship's relaxation area and uh, and bar, where there's a bartender, a former pilot named Shotglass that you can talk to, who will give you little bits of information about the the various pilots and there's always a couple of pilots that are just sort of hanging out there that you can talk to and and they will essentially have like a one-sided conversation with you doing that you'll learn more about them you'll learn stuff about the the Kilrathi their tactics and that stuff's all kind of cool there's also a a arcade cabinet that's in the bar that is basically like a training simulator for the ship so if you want a little bit of practice with flying your ship you can you can do that in kind of a a sort of no consequences scenario there's also a a barracks which as far as i can tell doesn't really have anything to do but you do see different people sleeping in the beds in there there's a leak in the in the ceiling that there's always water dripping (laughs) out of into a bucket which is a nice bit of flavor. And then when you're ready to start the next mission, you go into the briefing room and you get these, I think, pretty well done sequences where your commander is telling you about what the mission is. There's a little bit of back and forth between the commander and some of the other pilots. One thing I do actually really like about this is that you get the sense that these briefings are very long. And a lot of times when the briefings start, it'll be like 40 minutes into the briefing and it'll finally be getting to like, you know, the actual explanation of what you're supposed to do. Or like once your bit of the briefing is over, it'll like show a shot of of your character's face and it'll be like your thoughts wander as he completes the rest of the assignments. Yeah, the game is like, none of this other stuff is important. You got the important stuff. Yeah, then you're off on the missions uh, where usually it's you and I think one other named pilot or maybe more that's when it turns into a flight simulator that i found incredibly difficult to play i do not think the radar mini map in this game is very good it is not great at showing you sort of how you're oriented in relation to other things you also have different readouts on there of things like your ship's shields your weapons uh how far you are from the target that you're trying to reach in this version of the game, at least, I found the space combat with, with enemy ships pretty much a slog. It's really hard to see them against the space backdrops of the game. Yeah, going back to that radar, I think that really takes some getting used to. Like, the instruction manual sort of explains what certain things on the radar means, and it is just so abstract that I, I it's, it's really hard to parse. Like, uh, just because something is on the back half of the radar doesn't mean it's actually behind you, but it might mean that it's, like, above or below you, and, and then if it's in the outer ring, that means it's behind you. I just found it completely incomprehensible. I have to think that this game controls better on the PC, if for no other reason than you'd have peripherals on the PC that would make this easier to play. You've got flight sticks and things like that. 
A flight stick, I think, would be a lot better for this game than a controller. The way it's done here, it doesn't work very well with a controller. You know, the number of times I would try to complete a mes mission, uh, do okay, actually, at the combat eventually, and then hit an asteroid and die instantly on the way back to the ship, really did not endear me to the game. I do think that this game pretty effectively sells this particular fantasy of being a pilot, you know, in this sci-fi future war. I feel like if this game were just a point-and-click adventure game or a visual novel, like an early 90s version of, of Heaven Will Be Mine or something, I would be more into this. Like, that part of the game works for me. I'm going to say something I, I can't believe I'm saying, but, like, imagine if... All of the cinematic stuff, you know, where you're talking to people or people are talking to you were all the same, but like the action sequences were just scrolling shooters. That would have been a cool way to jazz up that genre on the system and also make this a much more playable game. Absolutely. The limitations of putting this game on the Super Nintendo are just too great to actually have it be fun. And unfortunately, you will not see much of the game unless you're good enough at those sequences to finish them. So I admire its ambition like i was saying at the beginning of of the the talk about this game the production values here even in this sort of diminished version on the super nintendo are pretty impressive these are very much diminished from what this game was originally like i watched a long play or sections of a long play for the amiga version and you can really see this like how much is really taken out? The animation is just so much more smooth on the Amiga version, probably because they needed to take out a lot of frames on the Super Nintendo version. Yeah, this is not the version of this game to play by any means. It's one of these things where it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of impressed that they managed to get as much of it as they did. But it's like, was it worth it yeah. in the end? I was expecting to be drawn into the world a little bit more than I was. Like, I got uh, a screen at the very beginning saying, hey, hu humankind is at war with the Kilrathi. And then I got a couple of characters who were kind of talking around the periphery of what's going on and the bigger picture. But I'm not really getting a sense of, like, why are we at war with, with this race? And, you know, how long has this been going on? Maybe it says something about the kind of times we live in. But, you know, I saw the splash screen saying that humanity is at war with the Kilrathi and thinking, like, OK, well, I'll assume we're the bad guys. Uh -huh. I don't feel like this game did a great job of really getting me into the story or giving me, you know, enough background to really make me care early on. But again, like, because this isn't really my kind of thing, I was probably always going to have that reaction anyway. But I wish it had done a little bit more from the outset to kind of make me care about this conflict. Evidently, I, I haven't looked at like scans of this or anything, but apparently the uh, the PC version of this comes with a very large, as 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 PC games tended to do back then, a very uh, elaborate instruction manual that that was written in the style of being like a newspaper distributed aboard the Tiger's Claw called like Claw Marks that I think it provide a bunch of of more sort of like world building for the game that's just not actually in in the game itself. I don't know if that would have come with the Super Nintendo version. The instruction manual does not really go nearly as in-depth into it, which I have seen a, a PDF of the instruction manual for the SNES version online. really have anything 
else here. So if you are ready to kick it over to the list and see see where we're going to put this, uh, I, I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah, this is a tough one because I don't even know where to start. Is there another game on here? I feel like there must be where we said, you know, like it's ambitious what they've done here, but why would you get this version of the game over, you know, another one? I feel like we've probably said that a couple times, right? Obviously, this is not where we're going to put this, but uh, you could actually argue that that race driving is exactly that. I'll be considerably more charitable than that. And I will say like maybe Draken at 44 is a good place to start for this one. Okay. Yeah, I think that's actually a good a good place to start. I do think that I personally vibe with Draken a, quite a bit more than this game. The ways in which Draken is is trying to push the envelope are more effective on the Super Nintendo than what what Wing Commander is is doing. The things that work about Wing Commander, the sequences where you're talking with other pilots in the bar or things like that or you're getting the mission briefings are better for the SNES than anything Draken was kind of doing. Like the like the whole game just seems to chug on the Super Nintendo in a way. I guess I'm just thinking about like how much poorer I find the actual flight combat sequences in Wing Commander than anything in Draken, basically. RPGs in general are a bit more our thing than flight sims. I mean, I will say like there is some janky stuff about Draken, uh, you know, outside of just the way it's presented. Like the way the menus worked. <laughs> I would say I think this goes above Drakken, unless you want to make an argument that it shouldn't. I don't know that I do. So I'm embarrassed to say that there's there's one game between Drakken and Rival Turf. It's a game called Imperium. I do not remember what this game is. I was totally just going to say, I think this comes down to Imperium. Do you remember what on earth that even was? Because I don't either. <laughs> I think it was a shooter. I'm going to look it up really quickly. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's our number 43 game. It's in the top 50 and we don't remember it. It is. It is. Okay, so it was a shooter. Oh, right, you're you're in the mech in this one. Yes, that's right. This is the one where the the, the power up system you got upgrades based on basically your score. I th- I think this is certainly a lot more ambitious than Imperium. You know, Wing Commander is a game where you know midway through the game you get a different, better ship, and the entire ship HUD completely changes because of that. Yeah, kind of like Hyperzone, except that like there's a lot more like like that has a lot more impact on you know how you're going to play like i think that happens multiple times i think you get like i think there's like four different ships that you eventually pilot I, I, yeah i did forget to mention that but i do think that was pretty cool that you actually like fly around in different ships god talking about that almost makes me think like maybe we should have started down at hyperzone <laughs> but <laughs> part part of me just feels like wow this is way too high for this game cuz i'm i'm of two minds about it like on the one hand yeah, they did some pretty ambitious stuff, but on the other hand, like, like, well, why would anybody play this today? It's true. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you should not play... If you want to play Wing Commander, you should not play this version of Wing Commander. The PC version in, like, a, a DOS box simulation is widely available still, and that surely is is a better option for you than than this. So... You know what? Okay, maybe let's bust it down. Uh, so we're talking, if we're talking about Hyperzone, the, the game right above Hyperzone is Prince of Persia, which is another classic PC game with a pretty not great Super Nintendo version. This is actually maybe like a really good comparison because we've got two like really long-lasting storied video game franchises that are not at their best here. 
But, you know, I think that Prince of Persia is maybe more flawed just because of the kind of game that it was at the time. Like, it, it has less to do with the Super Nintendo port and more just the way that game was. Yeah. Where this game, I think, is flawed because of this particular version. I agree with that. Um, I think I would put this above Prince of Persia. So then we're back to our old friend, Strike Gunner STG. I do struggle to think of two games that are more different than Wing Commander and Strike Gunner. That being said, I was able to play Strike Gunner for half an hour and have a very good time with it. And uh, my good times with Wing Commander did not actually last that long. How do you feel about putting this game between Strike Gunner and Prince of Persia? Yeah, let's do it. Boy, some folks probably got whiplash from that. We were like looking all the way up at like 40 something and then like, oh, no, you know what? This drops down to like the 60s, actually. I don't think we've ever done that before. (laughs) No, but I, I think that we ended up in a better place for it with this. They got it working as well as it did, and and there's something to be said for that. But even with that, like, you know, you would have played this game back in the day because you weren't a PC gamer, whereas now, like, you know, you can emulate either of these easily. Why on earth would you do the Super Nintendo version over the regular version? And the the original PC version is probably more readily available through legitimate channels, too. So I guess that means we're going to be looking toward... uh like Ultraman towards the future into uh into December because that's right this was the last game for November 1992 which means we're moving on into the last month of the year what's our our starting lineup look like for that we've got a real grab bag here we've got NHL PA Hockey 93 Lethal Weapon which I'm sure is great uh, and Musia which I don't think i've ever heard of so that'll be interesting to talk about that'll mean our our friend newsy is going to make a return next week as well that's exciting i always love when he comes through please join us for that we hope you enjoyed this deep dive into kind of esoteric things this time i think we hope that any hardcore star citizen fans out there that are listening to this show are not too terribly mad at us hopefully did you have anything else you wanted to say to the people at home, Steampunk Link? I guess uh, it's time to get serious. I didn't really have anything specific today, so I guess, you know, let's just keep reminding everybody that uh, just because it isn't Pride Month anymore, still we need to look out for our LGBTQIA plus friends and family. And just because it isn't Black History Month, Black Lives Still Matter, and we need to keep marching on. We need to keep protesting and uh, keep beating the drum of defunding the police. That still needs to happen. Yes, it does. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us for today. Thank you all, as always, very much for listening. We really appreciate it. And until next time, I'm Steampunk Link. I am Emmy Zero. Play it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com.